Welcome to Great Loop Radio, brought to you by America's Great Loop Cruisers Association. We're dedicated to sharing Great Loop information and inspiration with those actively cruising, planning for, or dreaming about a Great Loop adventure. This is Kim Russo. I'm the director of AGLCA. Today, the Homeport crew is going to answer some of the frequently asked questions about the Great Loop. So Karen Nettles from the Homeport crew is joining me, and she'll help walk us through those questions that we hear a lot um, before we jump into that, though, as always, I want to take a moment to recognize and thank our Admiral sponsors who support AGLCA at the highest level. They are Curtis Stokes and Associates, Passage Maker Trawler Fest, Skipper Bob Publications, and Waterway Guide Media. As always, we encourage our listeners to support these businesses that support the Great Loop. Welcome back, Karen Nettles, to Great Loop Radio. Thanks for joining me. Thanks. I'm glad to be a part of it. I know we have a lot of information to get out to our members, so I'm happy to, to be a part of the podcast when I can. Yeah, and we've got lots of new members. There's been a, a increasing interest in the Great Loop, especially during the pandemic, while everybody's kind of dreaming about place, other places they can be besides at home. Um, so let's jump in. Where should we start today? Okay. Um, I know one of the common questions is, what is the maximum air draft for a vessel that can do the Great Loop? Yeah, and that's probably, you know, the big question, because that's generally the limiting factor for a Great Loop boat. So we hear that a lot. Um, and there's also a lot of confusion on this, and it's, it's a number, so it seems like it should be black and white, but there's tons of confusion on this all the time. So the biggest number to remember, most important number, I should say, is 19.7 feet. That is the charted height of the lowest point on the Great Loop that there is no alternate route around. So to do the Great Loop, you have to be able to get under this 19.7 foot bridge. It is on the Illinois Waterway at mile marker 300.5. So it's a little bit south of Chicago. And I think one of the reasons there's a lot of confusion is that somewhere along the line, um, people started talking about that bridge in Chicago or that bridge outside of Chicago. Um, if you actually want to cruise through downtown Chicago on the Chicago River, you have to actually be able to get under about 17 feet. So there's some lower bridges on the Chicago River. But if you can't get under those bridges, there is an alternate way. You can take the CalSAG, um, which is uh, basically the, um, uh, the sanitation canal, it comes into Lake Michigan south of Chicago, and that route does not have the same bridge restrictions as the Chicago River. So you can kind of bypass Chicago if you can't get under those bridges. And then uh, again, mile marker 300.5 on the Illinois Waterway, 19.7 feet. There is no other way around that bridge. As much as we've tried to find one, <laughs> it just doesn't exist. And that's actually a railroad bridge that used to open and um, I don't know how many years ago it stopped functioning and has never been replaced or fixed. So any boat coming out of the Great Lakes and trying to head down the river system needs to get under that bridge. So hopefully that straightens out any confusion on that. Um, but, you know, as always, we're happy to take additional questions. So um, actually, this is a great time to tell you podcast at greatloop.org is the email address you can send questions to. Um, so that as we do more frequently asked questions, episodes like this one, um, we can answer those for you. Okay, so good to know about that particular bridge and where exactly it is in, on the Illinois waterway. Um, what other low bridges can affect route choices on the loop? So the ones on the Chicago River I mentioned, um, 
So that's definitely going to have you decide which way you're coming out of Lake Michigan. Um, the other place that it causes uh, a big part of your route choice is going to be dependent on your air clearance is the New York State Canal. So as you head up the Hudson River, you are going to reach a point called right at Waterford, New York, where the Erie Canal meets the Hudson River. Um, there's three, basically three choices at that point. You can turn into the Erie Canal, and if you wanna go all the way through the entire Erie Canal and end up in Lake Erie, you have to be able to clear about 15 and a half feet. So those are the lowest bridges in, in this set of route choices. Um, and that's key for a lot of people in 2021, as we are waiting and wondering if the U.S.-Canadian border will open to traffic in either direction. Um, those who want to continue the loop and, and bypass Canada for now, if you can get under that 15.55 foot bridge, it's easy um, to take the full Erie Canal all the way out to Lake Erie and stay on the U.S. side. So that's one choice. The other choice, if you can get under a 17-foot bridge, is to take the uh, Lake Champlain route, which is you're going to continue on the Hudson instead of going into the Erie Canal. Go through the Champlain Canal, Lake Champlain. That will put you into Canada. So if you're talking about currently right this minute, don't go that way because you'll get to the Canadian border and then you'll have to stop. Um, but that puts you out onto the St. Lawrence Seaway and you can continue the route that way. Beautiful route option, lots of bright scenery. You're be going through the historic cities of Canada and um, the Thousand Islands region. So that's a great choice if you can get under a 17-foot bridge. The third option, um, which is what many loopers do because they can't get under the 17 or 15-foot bridges. So anyone who managed to clear the bridge outside of Chicago uh, can take the Erie Canal to the Oswego Canal, and that Oswego Canal will take you out to Lake Ontario, and you can continue the journey from there. Once on Lake Ontario, if you cannot go into Canada, um, you can take the Welland Canal back to Lake Erie and continue that way. And there's a bunch of parameters for that. We actually covered that last week. Um, in other years, or perhaps later this year, if you are going to Canada, you would cross Lake Ontario, perhaps dabble in the Thousand Islands a little bit, and then head in towards uh, the Trent Severn Waterway. So you know, the most important clearance is that one that there's no alternate route. But if you have, uh, depending on your clear, your air clearance, those are going to give you your choices as you're entering the Great Lakes and which way you're going to go through the New York canals to get to them. Okay, well, that's good to know for the, the bridge clearances. I know we have some other uh, limitations people want to know. Is there a limitation on beam? And there's really not. Um, again, this is going to come down to route choices. The uh, Trent Severn waterway in Canada is uh, where there is a beam restriction. One of their locks, the maximum beam is 23 feet. So for most looper boats, that's no problem. If you're on a catamaran that's extremely wide, uh, you may not be able to do the Trent Severn, which is okay. Um, for a lot of people, that's a highlight. But if you can't do the, tr the Trent Severn waterway, you can uh, you know, either go through the Welland into the Erie Canal. You're going to take the Lake Erie route at that point if you can't do the Trent Severn, basically. Um, so the different ways we covered to get into Lake Erie is how you proceed if you are in um, a very wide boat that can't do the Trent Severn. Okay. And what about length? Are there any limitations on length? Really none. Um, most of the locks can certainly accommodate long and wide boats. Um, again, the Trent Severn might be the exception, but I think the, um, 
maximum length on the Trent Severn is 100 feet, which would be highly unusual for a great loop boat. And once you get into that length, you're probably going to have um, a draft and air clearance issues anyway. Um, so really no restrictions on the length of the boat that are going to matter to 99.9% of loopers. And speaking of length, just, just so new people, new members or new people mm -hmm. to the loop know, what's the average length of most looper boats? That's a great question. Um, and the average in our member database is just over 40 feet, like 40 feet and a couple inches when you average it. And that's been pretty consistent. It's, it's gone up maybe an inch or two on the average in the past several years, but it hasn't changed significantly. So 40 feet has been the average for a while now. Okay. And um, another popular question we get is what about draft? Yes. And that's another one. Um, you know, there is no maximum draft you, you can have. Again, another exception would be the Trent Severin. Um, on the Trent Severin, if you draw more than five feet, they will require you to sign a waiver. And certain sections of the Trent Severin are only maintained to a six foot depth. So if you draw more than five, it's going to be tight in some areas. If you draw more than six, you just simply can't do the Trent Severin. And again, that's a route choice. It's not mandatory. Mm -hmm. um, so if you have a, a deeper keel, you can still do the, do the loop. And I should mention, you know, we talked about the air draft as well. Um, for sailboats, you can, of course, still do the loop. About 9% of our members are on sailboats. And you do have to take the mast down to clear those lower bridges. Um, so for sailboats with a deep keel or other boats, other areas where you may have some challenges, there's usually another way. For example, here outside of Charleston, um, on some low tides, the water is pretty shallow. Um, if you are more comfortable, you can always go on the outside, meaning going out into the Atlantic Ocean and traveling that way. Um, the deeper that keel is, the more challenges you are going to have, such as getting in and out of marinas and things like that. So we really, really recommend, you know, not more than, than five and a half to six feet is probably where you will have the easiest time. If you draw more than that, you are going to start to have some additional challenges and have to be more conscious of the, the tidal shifts as you're cruising. The other thing I probably should mention here um, is that we've been giving the parameters for great loop capable boats. Um, I've been getting a lot of emails recently that I would love to be able to give a better answer to, uh, but it's a challenge because they're emails that give me a link to a specific boat and say, is this suitable for the Great Loop? Or what do you think about this for the Great Loop? That becomes a really personal choice. You know, all we can really tell you is that, you know, that boat appears to be capable <laughs> based on the specifications. Um, but when you start to talk about suitable or a, a good boat for the Great Loop, you really need to consider your own personal preferences because there are people on 20 foot center consoles who did the loop who had the time of their life. And, and one such person is Mike O'Malley. He will be our guest on our next edition of Docktails. Um, so he'll be telling you about that. But, you know, you've had also had people who have done it on a 70 foot boat and um, the number of staterooms is important and the style of the boat. So beyond whether it, from a specification standpoint can do the Great Loop. After that, it really largely comes down to personal preferences and um, personal choice. So that's when it gets kind of hard for us to answer. And probably the one thing we didn't touch on in, in that kind of list of limitations is the boat has to absolutely be very seaworthy. And that sounds like a no brainer, um, but 
the loop is viewed as an inland trip and it is, but you will come across some big water, so to speak. And, and the Great Lakes, even though they're not an ocean can kick up enormous waves. Loopers don't travel when those are, there are those bad weather days. So you're not gonna be out there in 20 foot waves, but you might unexpectedly encounter three footers or four footers. Um, and you know, safety is the primary thing. So we get asked a lot about houseboats and that's just one example I'm going to use. Um, and the designs on houseboats vary greatly. So some of them may be suitable for the Great Loop. Some of them have done the Great Loop. Others, if it was my personal choice, there are certain designs on houseboats that really were not made for three and four foot waves. And I would certainly uh, think twice before doing the Great Loop on those. So you know, loop capable includes the ability to cross the Gulf of Mexico and to cross some inlets and sounds on the East Coast that can kick up some waves. So keep that in mind as well when you're looking at the air draft and the beam. Um, also consider comfort and seaworthiness. Well, um, with all that said, you know, people do say, what's the most popular boat on the loop? So is it still the trawler or is it something else? You know, I really think that that's changed. And I still see this perception that a lot of folks think the loop is mostly retirees on trawlers. And that seems to be changing or have already changed. Um, we are seeing more and more motor yachts out there. We're seeing more and more catamarans. Um, you know, at the last couple face-to-face -face rendezvous we had before COVID hit, when we were able to have our looper crawls, which is where you kind of um, get to explore the boats in the marina at the, at the, um, during the afternoon, um, we had probably more motor yachts and other style vessels than we had trawlers there. Um, and I think some of the reasons for that, you know, fuel prices are still relatively low at this point. So the additional fuel you may end up using on a faster boat is not as much of an issue for many people. Um, you know, I think it's a nice styling. And I think some of the older trawlers, some of the um, Asian built trawlers are, are reaching the end of their lifespan on age. So some of those trawlers may be starting to get a little bit harder to find or a little bit harder to maintain. So I think those are a couple of reasons, but you know, I, I would certainly not suggest that somebody looking for a great loop boat limit their search to trawlers. They are great boats. They are fuel efficient. They are spacious, um, but there's lots of options out there that have become really popular. And um, you know, you ask kind of what are some of the most popular um, main ships are still very popular for the great loop. Uh, a lot of people are looking at meridians and navigators. There's lots of carvers out there. Um, other motor yachts, so and tugs have become very popular too. So it really runs the gamut for um, different styles of boats. So it's really just a matter of personal preference. Okay, well, I think we've covered pretty much the, the boat and, and limitations and so forth. You know, a lot of people, you can start the loop anywhere we know, you know, based on time of season or whatever, but we know a lot of people start in, in Florida. So what's the time frame if somebody wants to start the loop from Florida? Yeah, and we have been getting lots of questions, you know, saying I'm in this area, when do I start? Um, of course, you can start anywhere along the route, but it is seasonal. And I, I think this used to kind of be, you know, looper lore and very common looper knowledge, because most people were doing it in about a year and taking the seasonal approach to it. That has shifted a lot as uh, people are doing the loop younger and perhaps doing it in segments because they're still working 
or doing it in shorter pieces um, because they have other obligations or just wanting to cruise in a specific area for a longer amount of time. So we've had a couple of boats in the last few years. I think there were two actually that were named Chasing 80. And when we first heard that name, we thought they were, they were approaching 80 years old and thought great that they're out there on the loop. And then found out Chasing 80 was the degrees. <laughs> they were basically you know, chasing 80 degrees around the loop. And that's kind of a good rule of thumb and easy to remember. You, know, you never want to be where it's very cold because A, it's a little bit more uncomfortable on a boat, but B, facilities close. So with that in mind, if you're leaving Florida, you know, kind of heading up the East Coast, it's typical to kind of start from South Florida around this time of year, you know, kind of um, mid-March uh, to late March, people might start moving from South Florida. We typically hold our rendezvous in the place where most of the current loopers will be at that time of year. So, you know, coming through Charleston is usually mid-April. Our spring rendezvous is usually when we can have it um, early May uh, at the start of the Chesapeake in Norfolk. So you're basically just heading up the East Coast in spring. You want to be on the Great Lakes in the summertime. So let's say you're leaving from New York. You're probably looking at a um, early June departure from New York. Uh, you want to meander the Great Lakes for the summer, um, be in Chicago, likely sometime in September, occasionally later when there are lot closure issues, um, spend the fall heading down the inland rivers, arriving in Mobile, usually uh, mid-November-ish, and then crossing the Gulf and spending the winter in Florida. So that's kind of the benchmark, so to speak. And because more loopers are looping in segments, you may find loopers on the Chesapeake in late summer, which isn't typical if they're doing, you know, the continuous one year seasonal route. Um, but everyone's doing it in their own way and in a way that brings them joy. And we encourage that. So that kind of when are you supposed to be where has gotten a little bit lost and is not quite at the forefront anymore. So we're getting a lot of questions about that. So just remember, um, you know, spring, East Coast, summer, Great Lakes, fall inland rivers winter florida and that's you'll you'll kind of get the gist of it yeah well that's easy it should be easy to remember based on the season so mm -hmm. um we talked about like i said the boat and and we talked about the route and so forth uh we know in 2019 and in 2020 there were lot closures mm -hmm. um so i know people are concerned about that when do we expect the next time that there might be lot closures on the illinois waterway or anywhere else for that matter yeah and that's been the next big question that people are concerned about. Um, the next scheduled long closure is once again, the Illinois waterway. It is scheduled for 2023 and they're looking for 90 to 120 days to close. Um, I believe it's two locks this time. Last year it was seven, if I'm not mistaken. In essence, it doesn't matter because it only takes them closing one for you not to be able to proceed. Um, so they're projecting 90 to 120 days for the project exactly the same length of time they needed in, in 2020. And when they first started announcing and planning that project, I had some discussions with the Corps of Engineers um, because the, the months they picked were the absolute worst month from a looper perspective. It was right when loopers would be coming through. And they explained that they had to find a, a three to four months between the prime shipping seasons. This is a very commercial waterway and before the winter freeze sets in. And the only time they could do it was like July, August, September, October. So given that that's the only time frame they could do for 2020, 
and they need 90 to 120 days again in 2023. They're calling it kind of a late summer closure, but we're anticipating it be a, being July through October timeframe again. Now we have learned from 2019 when they closed and it was supposed to be a shorter amount of time, but ended up running behind and opened much later. Um, and we learned from 2020 that the loop is still doable even with those closures. We did have um, members both years waiting in, in and around Chicago in mid to late October for those locks to open so they could proceed. And they all made it through just fine. Um, and we were able to help kind of organize flotillas of those boats so that there wasn't a big bottleneck heading into the river system once it reopened. So, you know, 23, it will be a hiccup, so to speak, but we don't anticipate it being a huge problem for those who um, want to meander on the Great Lakes a little bit longer and, and not come through Chicago until mid to late October. And obviously AGLCA and Homeport crew, we're here to kind of navigate that. You, you stay on top of that. So people get plenty of information and know what to expect and everything else when that does happen. So people yeah, can. Absolutely. Um, there is also one, one other thing I wanted to mention when we were kind of talking about the timeframes <laughs> that I forgot. And that is a question I am hearing and, and seeing out there quite frequently is, I want to go from point A to point B, doesn't matter what those points are, how long will it take? And that's another question that's extremely hard to answer on the surface because people cruise at different speeds. Um, the average looper cruise, cruises about 50 miles in one day. But if you just bought the boat and you're, try, you're not really on the loop yet, you're trying to get it home to your home port, you, you may be cruising more like you're on a delivery and covering much more ground than that. Um, some boats have the capability to travel faster than others. Um, so, you know, we can help you. Other loopers can help you try and figure that out. But when you're posting to our social media or to our forum asking questions like, how long will it take? Or is this a great loop, a good great loop boat? Lots of detail. The more detail, the better is going to help you to, to get good answers. So if you're asking how long it will take to get, get from point A to point B, add, you know, what kind of boat it is, how fast you plan to cruise, how many hours a day you plan to cruise. Um, even if it's just a guess, it helps frame the question so that you'll get some better answers. And the same thing goes if you're asking if this is a good boat for the loop. You know, who else is going? Are you a couple? Are you a family? Are you solo? Um, you know, how long do you plan on being on the loop? Those kinds of questions are really going to help you to get some good answers. So, um, you know, if you ask a question and it's very broad and not framed and you don't get a lot of answers, it's not that people don't want to help. It's that they're probably not sure where to start. Um, so, so the details are, are really key to those. And with that, let's take a quick break before I forget and play a message from one of our sponsors. Um, and when we come back, we'll, we'll finish up with these frequently asked questions. So we'll be back in a moment. PropTalk is an Annapolis-based company founded in the summer of 2005 by active Chesapeake Bay boaters. The company produces PropTalk Magazine, a monthly newsprint magazine focused on Chesapeake Bay power boating and the lifestyle surrounding boating on the bay. Every issue of PropTalk is distributed at more than 850 carefully chosen and closely monitored locations throughout the Mid-Atlantic. PropTalk's coverage goes deep rather than wide, and the magazine celebrates the people, places, boats, personalities, and events that make the Chesapeake one of the world's premier boating grounds. Thanks for reading and supporting the Chesapeake Bay's Boating Magazine. We're back on Great Loop Radio. Today, I am talking with Karen Nettles from the Homeport Crew, and she is guiding us through some of the frequently asked questions that we're hearing from members and from 
all those interested in the great loop that are on our social media or who listen to our podcast. So Karen, what else have we got today? What are the questions? Um, besides the questions we talked about the boats and, and the route itself, uh, and you kind of alluded to this when you were talking about the route, you made reference to rendezvous. That's another popular question that we're getting, particularly with the you know, the pandemic and everything, we've had a lot of virtual events and people are eager to know when the next in-person event will be. Yes, and um, it's a great question. It's a very fair question. As you might imagine, um, everything is still uncertain with the pandemic. Um, it was just about this time last year that we made the really, really tough decision uh, to cancel our spring rendezvous in 2020. Um, at that time, we never dreamed that we would be sitting in 2021 having that same discussion. Um, but we are, and we have made the decision that with an early May rendezvous, it just isn't safe enough at this point, most likely, <laughs> to have that as a face-to-face -face event. It's still two months away, but the planning that goes into it does not allow us to do it in a short time frame. And as of now, when we made that call, the state of Virginia, was, on, which is where we host the spring rendezvous, was only allowing in-person gatherings of 10 people. They have since expanded it to 25, but that is still not nearly enough for a rendezvous. And our rendezvous are of a style where there are lots of seminars, which means indoor conference space. Um, one of the really key parts of the event is group meals because that's where you make those connections. That's where you have those informal conversations and build those relationships. Um, but of course, that's another thing that uh, can lead to a super spreader event, which we're absolutely trying to avoid. So that's quite, quite a long-winded way of telling you. Um, we expect and hope and have our fingers crossed that our fall rendezvous will be the next in-person rendezvous. It is scheduled for October 18th through the 21st at Joe Wheeler State Park in Rogersville, Alabama. Before you all start going out and trying to book lodge rooms and slips for those dates, we book the entire facility. So all of that is on hold and you cannot make any of those reservations until you have registered for our event. And that's something we had to start doing a few years ago because it is um, a great facility and it's been our home for I think almost 20 years for our fall rendezvous. Um, but it is smaller than we wish it was. Um, we would love to be able to fit more people in there. Um, we've just basically filled it to its capacity from the lodge rooms to the conference and meal space to the boat slips. Um, we know there is going to be a big demand for this event if we can go ahead and have it uh, because it will be our first rendezvous in 18 months. We'll have skipped three at that point. Um, so we're working on some ideas on how we can accommodate the most possible members. It is a members only event. So if you're not a member, you will need to join before you can register for that. There'll be lots more details coming. Um, we typically open registration three months in advance. So that would put it in mid-July. Um, and by then we will have all of the details ready as well as, you know, any other accommodations we can make to try and um, get that information and that camaraderie and that really uh, desire for the face-to-face -face events for as many people as we possibly can. Well, I guess we've got to add a plug here. Like I said, we have been doing virtual events since we can't have the in-person events. So we probably want to do a plug here for promote uh, the virtual spring rendezvous just for a second. Yeah. And when we canceled the 2020 spring rendezvous, we didn't attempt, it was shorter notice. We didn't attempt to, to do a full scale virtual rendezvous, but when we had to uh, also pass on a face-to-face -face fall rendezvous in 2020 is when we started a virtual rendezvous. 
So we're doing that again for the spring. Um, the event looks a lot like the fall rendezvous did. Um, you can find the details on our website right now. It is greatloop.org. Did we a short links slash spring? Yeah, right. okay, greatloop.org slash spring. Um, or you can just go to the events menu and you'll find it there. But all of the details are available. Registration is open. We've gotten a couple questions on the portions of the route we're covering. And, and basically we're starting from Norfolk, which is where the face-to-face -face event would have been. And we're taking you around the route through Chicago. Um, Chicago is actually where we started the route briefings at our virtual fall rendezvous. So if you attended that Looperpalooza and the virtual spring rendezvous, you'll have covered the entire route minus some route choices. And that's where uh, we kind of struggled a little bit. Um, attention spans are much shorter online. Um, we just can't cover as many seminar hours as we can in person. So we had to make some choices on which of the route options we were gonna cover. Um, we have decided that looking at the, who attended the virtual fall rendezvous in Looperpalooza, they were 85% still planning. Only 15% said they were in progress on the loop. So we have made the decision to cover the route that takes you through the Erie Canal to the Oswego Canal into Lake Ontario. Reason being, every looper boat can do that route, because if you've cleared this, the bridge outside of Chicago on the Illinois Waterway, you can clear the bridges on that route. Not everyone can do the full Western Erie. Not everyone can do the Lake Champlain route. That said, we know that that route we're covering may not be possible in 2021 if the border isn't reopened. Um, but since most of the attendees have been planners, we kind of think that that's okay, that once they go, hopefully that border will be open. That said, if we have enough interest in the Lake Erie route, um, we will put together a separate webinar for that and make some accommodations for the, those who attended the spring rendezvous and we weren't able to include it. So when you're looking at what's on the website for that, that's the reasoning behind the route options that we've decided to include. Um, the other place we had to make a tough choice was Lake Michigan. We just didn't have enough time to cover both sides of the lake. And most loopers will, will choose the Wisconsin side or the Michigan side. Most will not do both. Um, we chose the Wisconsin side. And the primary reason for that is I think um, typically there's more information available on the, the Michigan side. And also the Wisconsin side, we were able to bring in the same speaker who presented that the last time we had a face-to-face -face spring rendezvous. That was Jim Donnelly. And he was one of our top rated speakers for that session. He gives a really great presentation. So that is the side of the lake we'll be covering at the virtual spring rendezvous. Um, registration, as I said, is open. Greatloop.org slash spring. Um, the, the event dates. <laughs> the event dates. Um, we will uh, be continuing Tuesday and Thursday evenings from May 4th through May 20th. And th that's the pattern that we've used for the, the last two big virtual events. And the attendees at those overwhelmingly said that that works. So it's three weeks of Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, and you can plan for that and, and be ready to go in, in early May. We wish we were doing it in Norfolk face-to-face, -face, but um, this is the, the, the best option we have available at this time. And it, it works pretty well. It's not quite the same as being face-to-face, -face, but it's, it's a close second. Yeah, for sure. Um and just to, to mention, you do have to be a, a member of AGLCA to attend and register for the rendezvous event. So, you know, a lot of people, we put out a lot of information today and, and questions that people uh, commonly ask when they're uh, trying to learn about the loop and are just introduced to it. A lot of people are trying to figure out when should they, should they join AGLCA? When's a good time to do that? 
Yeah, and we get that question, and it, it um, still surprises me sometimes. Um, there seems to be a perception that most of what AGLCA offers is for those that are currently on the loop. Um, I really think a lot of the value in membership comes from during the planning process because there is so much information um, and, and so much access to people who have already done the loop via our forum um, where you can ask them questions. It's just, um, there's just a whole lot of you're still planning. Even uh, if you don't have the boat yet, there's a whole lot of resources for that. So obviously everyone is welcome to join wherever on the journey it makes the most sense to them. Um, but it's really not just about discounts at marinas and other places. It really is the sharing of the information. And it's not just about the burgee. Um, it really is the camaraderie and building those relationships, which can start well in advance of when you go. I actually call all of our new members um, just to kind of check in, make sure that they understand uh, how to access everything and, and that we're here to answer questions. And I would say, you know, a good half to two thirds usually tell me they're somewhere between two and three years from starting. Um, so that, that seems to be pretty typical around the two year mark. Uh, but again, People are welcome to join whatever it makes most sense for them in their Great Loop journey, but there's lots of resources for planners and greatloop.org slash join us kind of outlines all of the benefits of membership. And there's lots on the greatloop.org website. If you're not a member yet, there's plenty of resources there for you as well. Well, I think we've covered a, a lot of information today and I'm sure we'll have a future uh, episode with more FAQs as they come along. Yes, and again, um, whether it's a question about something we've covered or a general question or um, a suggestion for a podcast topic, we would love to hear from you. Podcast at greatloop.org is the email address that comes right to me, but it's just an easy address to remember. Um, and we'll, you know, we, we love to get suggestions for topics because that's one of our biggest challenges is, is keeping this fresh and interesting. So um, let us know your thoughts. Karen Nettles from the Home Port Crew, thanks for helping us out today and walking through those questions. Oh, you're quite welcome. And to everyone who has listened or watched today, thanks for joining us once again on Great Loop Radio. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, safe cruising. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. 